As we begin a new month, we are beginning a new sermon series that we're going to spend four weeks looking at the concept of stewardship. And so uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we kind of get started and refocus on our attention upon uh, the Lord and His Word. So Father, we do thank you this morning for being a big God. And God, as I was just listening to our children sing, especially those last two songs, they fit so perfectly with the direction of the message this morning that you are a God who has created us, designed us perfectly uh, for yourself, that you put purpose in our heart, that there's a reason for our existence, and that is to bring glory and honor only to you. And Lord, we thank you also that you're the God who holds all of us. Our lives are in the palm of your hand. Lord, you sustain everything in this universe, and you sustain us. Lord, you have the power and the ability to calm the storms in our life, to speak peace to us, when there seems to be no peace. And so, Lord, we look to you this morning. I pray that you would put your words in my heart, put your words in my mouth. And, Lord, I pray that over the next four weeks, as we look at this concept of stewardship, that you would, first and foremost, help us to see how big you are, how wonderful you are, how gracious you are. And, Lord, I pray that in tune we would align our lives with you and with your greatness and serve you and seek to bring glory only to your name. So may you bless the preaching of your word this morning and speak mightily to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to begin a new series, as I just mentioned, and we're going to talk about stewardship. And you know when the average evangelical Christian hears a a message or a series of messages uh, coming from the perspective of stewardship coming from the lips of the pastor, your first reaction is to reach for your wallet and make sure it's secure, right? You probably had those thoughts this morning. Perhaps even this uh, last few weeks as you heard that we're going to move into this series, you thought about or at least contemplated the idea of taking the month of August off from church and to kind of set this one out for a period of time. I hope you didn't, but perhaps that was a thought that initially went through your mind. And so why is stewardship, why is this concept, this subject, such a frightful and even unpleasant subject. I'm going to suggest a couple of reasons. First of all, may I suggest that the reason it's frightful and the reason it's unpleasant is largely due to the fact that we have the wrong perspective of stewardship. We just simply don't understand what it is. I personally believe that to the average church member, stewardship is seen more as a campaign finance uh, or a finance campaign to raise money for a certain project than anything else. And so you see it from the perspective of we're going to take some money up over a period of weeks to build a building, or we're going to take a, a, an offering up over, over a period of weeks for a, a mission project. And so you see it in the context of raising camp, uh, finances in a campaign rather than a lifestyle. Another reason I believe is that this. Uh, that there's so many, that this is unpleasant to so many is because of the perceived stress it adds to a person or a family's budget and a calendar, right? Because when we begin to think of, of stewardship, we begin to think of, oh, we got to set aside more money or we got to set aside more time or we got to set aside more of our talents and abilities for something else other than what we would like to do or what we feel that we can only do. It adds stress into our lives. But I want you to think for a moment with me. What events have produced the greatest stress even in your life today and over the past week? What are those things that's created stress or anxiety in your life? Haven't they been uh, involved or haven't they involved some sort of feeling of, of being overloaded with responsibilities at home or responsibilities in your job or responsibilities perhaps even for these VBS workers who are sitting in their highlighter shirts of, uh, of just being overloaded with responsibility at church, or perhaps it's all of those things. 
Or maybe it involves the, the responsibilities of paying bills and running late for an appointment or balancing your checkbook. Waiting in a traffic jam there on the highway because of an accident or stuck in an airport trying to get home. Facing an unexpected car repair or medical expenses that are always going up. Going, uh, uh, going with too little rest or running short of cash before the month's out. All of those things create stress and anxiety in our lives. They weigh us down, right? It's not the, the biblical mandate of, of stewardship. It's just a day-to-day life that brings stress and, and anxiety to us. And so each, each of these anxiety producers has to do with either time or money. Most of our life, if not all of our life, has to do with those two concepts. So think for a moment just how these day-to-day issues involves the use of those two things. Everything in your life has, it consists of money and time. They're substantial factors in so many parts of our lives. And so if we're going to consider the the idea of godly living, the idea of living a life that honors God, a life that that, that respects the Lord, uh, a life that brings glory to the name of Jesus, we cannot do so without looking at what it means to be a steward of the things that God has entrusted to us. And so I believe it's imperative that we learn how to be a better steward in in our lives personally, in our families, how to be a better steward with our time, how to be a better steward with the money that the Lord entrusts to us, how how to be a better steward with the ministries that God has for us in our church. I mean, how can we steward the ministries that we have to bring the most glory to the Lord and and to do what God's called us to do? And so everything God has entrusted to us, we're going to see that God expects us to be a godly, humble, efficient steward. And so the question that's on the table this morning that we need to clear up first and foremost is this. What is a steward? It's not a term that we throw around in everyday conversation. I doubt in the last week any of us in this room, outside of me perhaps, because I've been studying this, been talking about this, I doubt any of us have used the word steward, right? We don't use that term in everyday conversation. And so what is a steward? Well, the Bible gives us a picture of that, that of being a household or an estate manager. For instance, if we were to go to Genesis 39 this morning and, and look at the story of Joseph, we would see that Joseph, as he's sold into slavery by his brothers, goes down to Egypt and becomes the steward or the house manager of a man by the name of Potiphar. And the, the Bible there talks about, and, and the story shows us that, that Joshua, or, or I should say Joseph, he talks to Potiphar's wife and makes the statement that your husband, my master, has entrusted me with all, all the affairs of his house. Nothing has been uh, taken from me. I am the steward. I am the estate manager of my master. And so a steward is simply one that who doesn't own something. He manages and cares for what is owned by his master. And so as we think about stewardship, stewardship is, defi- is defined, as Chris Goulard says... And I quote, it's foundationally an understanding that we are not owners of things, but simply managers. So if we're going to be a good steward, we first need to know who the owner is. Who is the owner that we serve? Who is the owner whose affairs and whose whose, uh, material goods do we manage and do we take care of? Who owns everything 
in our lives. And so this morning, I want to speak to this subject, Jesus, he's my God, my Lord, and my Savior, because I believe if we're going to live with palms up, as this series is, has been entitled, if we're going to live our lives with our palms up in worship and in service to the Lord, we first need to know who that we are serving, who we're living for, who we are managing the affairs for. And so if you want to take your Bible, find your place in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin looking at what Paul has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ and his deity. And so Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, the apostle says this. He says, speaking of Jesus here, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul here penned this letter to the church at Colossae for one major reason. And, and the issue that, was, that the church there in Colossae was facing was this destructive heresy that we know today or that we speak of today as, as Gnosticism. And so Paul writes this letter to combat this destructive heresy that was working to undermine the gospel there in the church. This heresy was being taught... Uh, this, that was being taught was a combination of, uh, of Eastern philosophy, Jewish legalism, and then the influence of the Gnostic leaders or, or teachers there in the, in, in, in the early church. These Gnostics were the people that were in the know when it came to the deeper things of God. And I'll just, I'll just tell you right now, today in our culture, when you hear of somebody who says, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to lead you to the deeper things of the Lord, I just want to caution you right there. I mean, that, that, that throws up red flags for me that when somebody's going to help me understand how to go deep with the Lord, uh, I think we need to be cautious there because oftentimes it leads you into something that's being supplemented or added to the Word of God. And so that's what these guys were doing. These spiritual aristocrats in the church were helping or trying to lead people to a deeper understanding of who the Lord is. I, we don't need anything deeper than the Word of God itself. We don't need anything deeper than the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the Word of God, and it is final. But these men were leading this heretical teaching that was promising people a, such a close union with God that they could achieve spiritual perfection. And they taught them that if they would, that they would pursue this, they could have this spiritual fullness if they followed their teachings and performed various ceremonies and did all the things that they prescribed. It also taught that matter was evil. And so if matter's evil, then there's no way that God could come in the form of human flesh because matter, flesh, is evil. And so they taught that rather than Jesus being God, that God had given them various emanations or emanations had come from God so that God could speak to humanity and teach humanity, but that Jesus was not God. And so right there, we've got a huge problem with their teaching. 
they also, the Eastern philosophy part of it, was, was, was uh, uh, connected with this form of Jewish legalism. And so they brought in circumcision and they brought in various aspects of the Old Testament law. And so they had to follow a, a dietary type law and other things. And, and so if they kept these rules and they did these regulations and they believed in this deeper teaching of the Lord, then they could achieve something for, greater and better than what the gospel was presenting to them. And so in response to this destructive heresy that's disrupting the faith there in Colossae, Paul reminded the church that Jesus was, in fact, God. That Jesus was not just a human, not just a, a good teacher, not just a man, not just any of, any of those things. He was, in fact, God of very God. And that his sacrifice was sufficient. And as such, he has to have preeminence in the life of the believer. And so as we seek to be good stewards, as we seek to understand what does it mean to be a manager of the things of God, we need to first go back and understand who God is and who Jesus is and understand that He's God and we're not and thus align our lives accordingly. And so this morning I want to share with you three things in conjunction with Jesus being my God, my Lord, and my Savior and the first thing I want to point out to you is what Paul begins here with, and that is Jesus created it all. And it all was created for him. Jesus created it all, and it all was created for him. Today in various religions, there's all kinds of debate as to the nature of Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus what was he like? What was his powers? What was his abilities? What was his mission? What was his purpose? The Jehovah's Witnesses, which really don't make up a huge percentage of our population, maybe about 1% of the American population would identify themselves as a Jehovah's Witness, but we know that they are very uh, intentional in going out and knocking on doors and trying to share their faith. Amen? I was in Barcelona with some of our folks just a couple weeks ago, and we saw Jehovah's Witnesses knocking door to door there in the city of Barcelona. But Jehovah's Witnesses reject the doctrine of the Trinity. And so they reject the idea that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God who, who, who reveals himself in three persons. They claim that Jesus was not divine and that the Holy Spirit is an active force rather than a person. And so Jesus, instead for them, was God's only direct creation. He was the firstborn of creation. They would use this passage as a reference point. And so being the firstborn of creation then, he is rightly called the Son of God. Basically, what they would believe is that God the Father created God the Son, or Jesus Christ. They would even use the title God the Son. He created Jesus, and through Jesus, everything else was created. But Jesus is then a created being. The Mormons believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. And so they have a, a, another understanding of the Trinity. And so a good way of grasping their understanding of God is the phrase, As man is, God once was. What that means is, is they believe that God the Father, at one point back in history, was a human just like us. And he lived a certain life that was good enough to earn him deity. And so he, was, he lived a perfect life. He was he died, he was resurrected, he was glorified, and then somehow he took on the deity or the power that he has today. He gained his deified status. And so the Son and the Spirit then are God the Father's divine offspring, thus being created. 
The Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. They believe even that Jesus would return at the end of time. They even refer to Jesus as a word from God, but Islam directly or explicitly denies his deity as the Son of God. They would see Jesus as a great prophet, a great teacher, but he's not the Son of God. And so with all of these different ideas and so many more swirling around in our culture and around the world today, it's hard for us to grasp at times what it, who Jesus is and what we should believe about Jesus. But Paul here very clearly clarifies for us who Jesus is. Look again at verse 15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So Paul here tells us that Jesus is the invisible God, or he's the image of the invisible God. This is magnified by Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where there in the beginning of that verse, he says he is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so Jesus is the exact representation, he's the exact revelation of God the Father. Jesus was able to say in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as we look upon Jesus, we see God the Father. They are one and the same and yet distinct. God the Father is in essence invisible. We can never see him, but Jesus, God the Son, has revealed him to us. Paul goes on to say that Jesus not only is the image of the invisible God, he's also the firstborn of all creation. This description of the Lord doesn't refer to time. It refers rather to place and status. And so Jesus is not the first being who was created because he goes on to say, Paul does, that through Jesus everything was created that has been created. And so Jesus is not the first creation, rather he has first place in creation. Everything was created through him. So firstborn here speaks of first importance. It speaks of first rank. Jesus then is not that created being that others would believe. He is eternal God who created all that there is. If we were to go to Genesis chapter 1 this morning and see the creation account, you would see God the Father being exemplified as he's hovering, where that's the Spirit of God. But the God the Father here is creating. Bara, the word there in the Hebrew, speaks of something that's created from nothing. And so God the Father is creating. The voice is going out. John 1, 1 tells us that the Word of God is Jesus Christ. And so God the Son is the active agent who is creating all that there is. And then God the Spirit is hovering over all that is being created. So we have the Trinity being revealed to us early on in the revelation of God's Word. Jesus is God. Not only did He create it all, Paul tells us here that it was all created for Him. It was created through Him and it was created for him. I, I use this verse all the time because I believe it's so foundational in our understanding of, of who God is and who he's created us to be. If we would grasp that, it would change our lives forever. And so he's the one who created everything and he created it for himself. Jesus then is the sphere in which everything exists. He's the agent through which everything came into being and he's the one for whom everything was made. And that means for us that just like everything else in creation, you were made by God and you were made for God. 
You're not an accident. We were telling our kids this week, this is what a VBS was all about. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. You're not here by chance. You're not some sort of random design that took place over millions of years. God has very specifically, very distinctly created each and every one of us for his purpose and for his good pleasure. You're created by God and you were created for God. So your life is not your own then. It is God's life. You are a manager. You're a steward of the life that he has given to you. And so the sooner we understand this truth and the sooner we submit ourselves to it, the better our lives will be. I came across a quote this week by a lady named Pearl Bartell. And it says this, I fail or succeed in my stewardship of life in proportion to how convinced I am that life belongs to God. Let me read that again. I fail or succeed in my stewardship of life in proportion to how convinced I am that life belongs to God. See, you'll be successful in life. You'll be significant in life when you understand that your life is not yours, it's God's. And everything in your life needs to follow in line with that. It needs to come into congruence with that great truth of Scripture that Jesus created it all and it all was created for him. There's a second thing I want us to see this morning, and that is this. Jesus rules over it all. He goes on in verse 17 to say, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice the descriptive words that Paul uses here to speak of Jesus' rule. He says he is before all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He says he is the head of the church. He's the beginning. In him the fullness of God dwells. In other words, what Paul is telling us here is this. Jesus rules over everything. Sometimes we think that we're in control of our lives. Sometimes we have a tendency to believe that we're in control of our finances. Sometimes we believe that we're in control of the gifts and the talents that we have. We think that we're in control of the children that we have. Sometimes we even have the audacity to think that we're in control of the church that we are part of. But Paul tells us here very clearly that our lives and our time and our money and our children and our careers and our church and whatever else it is in our life, it's not ours. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and he rules over it all. So this means for you and for me that it's not my life, it's his life. It's not my time, it's his time. It's not my family, it's his family. It's not my job, it is his job. It's not my money, it is his money. It's not my skills and talents, it's his skills and talents. It's not my house, it's his house. It's not my church, it is his church. And he owns it all and he rules over it all. Thus Jesus is to be preeminent. He's to have first place in everything right? He's to have first place in everything. So that means when I'm moving into the first part of the month, and I'm beginning to set up the budget for my family and for my home. Who's at the top of that budget? Is it the truck payment? Is it the mortgage payment? Is it whatever else? As we get later on to this series, we're going to see that if Jesus is to be preeminent, he must be preeminent in our finances, in our budgeting. He must be preeminent in our serving. He must be preeminent in every aspect of our lives. third thing I want us to see this morning. <clears throat> not only did Jesus create it all, and it was all created for him, and not only did Jesus, or does Jesus rule over it all, <clears throat> Jesus, thirdly, reconciled it all. Verse 20, and through him, 
<clears throat> to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, <clears throat> in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. <clears throat> you see, when the first man and the woman sinned there in the Garden of Eden, what took place, what we read about in Genesis chapter 3, is that they, Adam and Eve, waged war upon God. They rebelled against God. They declared war against God. But the beauty of chapter 3, and I was sharing it the other just a, a couple days ago was, with some folks as I was sharing the gospel. <clears throat> the beauty of that picture is, though they were warring against God, God was not warring against them. The Bible tells us that God came and he became walking in the garden just like any other day. And he calls out to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us, were hiding behind the bushes. They had sown fig leaves to cover their shame. They knew that there was something wrong. They knew that their lives had been separated from God. They had rebelled, thus they had fallen. And yet God comes calling. God comes saying, Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? And they're hiding from the Lord. God that day... Even though he pronounced a curse upon Adam and Eve, even though he pro <clears throat> produced, or proclaimed a, a, a curse against the creation itself and against the serpent, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is a beautiful picture of the grace of God as he made a covering for them. You see, Adam and Eve were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. It was inadequate to cover their shame. It was inadequate to cover their guilt. But God comes in his grace and he makes a covering for them. There at the end of Genesis 3, what we see is <clears throat> the Bible tells us that God the Father killed an animal. It doesn't tell us the, the, the specific animal that was killed, but I believe it foreshadows what's going to come in Jesus. And so I believe God took a lamb from the Garden of Eden, and he sacrificed that lamb, and he took the skins from that lamb, and he created a covering for Adam and Eve to cover their sin and their shame. God made a way. He reconciled them to himself. <clears throat> but that sinful nature that became present in their life was passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so today, just as in the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> the unredeemed sinner is at war with God. The person who's not come into relationship with Jesus is at war with God. See, the sinner may be sincere. The sinner may be religious. The sinner may even be moral in his life or in her life, but she is still at war with God. But the Bible tells us here that God has reconciled all through Jesus Christ. Jesus has done what we could not do for ourselves. <clears throat> when Adam sinned, all of creation including mankind, was corrupted. It was plunged into depravity. It was subjected to futility. Paul here declares that Jesus has reconciled all things to himself now. So how can a holy God be reconciled to sinful men? The two just cannot come together. It's like oil and water. They can never mix. How can the holiness of God be united with the sinful and the evil depravity of humanity? The truth is it can never come together. But God. <clears throat> Some would argue that God lowered his standards. Some would argue that God closed his eyes to the sin of humanity. Some would argue that God ignored the rebellion of Adam and Eve and the rebellion of you and I. But the truth is he never did any of those things. In his justice, he cannot allow that to happen. In the laws that he's created, he cannot sustain the universe if he tipped one way or the other. And so to, to bring sinful, lost humanity back into relationship with himself, the people he created for purpose, for a relationship with himself, 
himself. He had to do something that only he could do. He had to come to this world... take on human flesh to fully identify with us and our weaknesses and our temptations and then dies a sacrificial sacrifice, a sacrificial offering for the sins of all humanity. You see, God reconciled it all to himself by taking the punishment for the rebellion upon himself. It was the death of Jesus, God the Son, that has reconciled all things to himself. Being fully God, Jesus was able to fully identify with the holiness of God. Being fully man, he was able to fully identify with the weakness and the temptations of humanity. And then his sinless life was given as a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute there upon the cross for the sins of mankind. It is God the Son who reconciles you to God the Father through the work of God the Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches about Jesus. So this morning, if you're in relationship with God, it was Jesus who reconciled you. It was not your abilities. It was not your good works. It was not your faithfulness. It was not your attendance at church. It was not because you helped enough old ladies across the road as a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout. It was simply because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and paid the penalty that you deserved. The penalty that you cannot pay. The Bible tells us that we were once dead in sin. We were dead in our trespasses. But by grace, we have been made holy, blameless, and above reproach. So, in light of that, how does one respond to such grace? You respond like Paul did. You respond by surrendering yourself to the lordship of Jesus. Paul most often spoke of this surrendership in the, in, with the term doulos, speaking of himself as a servant, a bondservant of God, one who has willingly given his life over to his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. This term carries the basic idea of subservience. It refers to one who's bound to another, whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. See, Paul's will was at one time swallowed up in the will of Satan. But when he met Jesus there on that Damascus road in Acts chapter 9, his will was swallowed up in the sweet will of God. Paul served Satan to the detriment of his own interests. But then as he became a follower of Jesus, as he planted churches, as he wrote the New Testament, Paul realized that Jesus created it all. And so today he serves him with reckless abandonment, not regarding his own interests. Paul understood that Jesus created it all, and it was all created for him. He realized that Jesus rules over it all, and he realized that Jesus had reconciled it all. And so Paul realized that Jesus is glorious. Paul realized, and he understood in his life, that not only was Jesus glorious, but Jesus was gracious. When we're confronted with such glory, and when we are confronted with such grace, how should we respond? Three things I want to quickly say this morning, and we're going to flesh these out over the next three weeks. Here's number one. When we're confronted with glory and grace, it should change the way we live. It should change the way we live. Because it's not my life, it's his life. It's not my time, it's his time. It's not my family, it's his family, right? It ought to change the way we live. We no longer think the way we used to think. We no longer live the way we used to live. We, not only, we no longer do the things that we used to do. It changes the way we live. Secondly, it changes the way I serve. I begin to understand that I've been made by God and for God. And so how can I give myself in service to this great God? How can I give myself in service to this gracious God? I'm going to use my life to serve Him as a, as a bondservant of God. I'm going to serve Him. 
as a steward of all the things that he owns, and I own nothing, I'm going to serve him. And so what talents do I have? What skills do I have? What abilities do I have to serve the Lord in his church, to serve the Lord outside of his church? And then thirdly, it should change the way I give. It should change the way I give. He says, it's no longer my money. It's no longer my income. It's no longer my checkbook. It's no longer my banking account, my stock portfolio, my retirement. It's none of those things are mine. I'm going to give because Jesus gave to me. I'm going to give because there's no better way to be like Jesus than to give. To live as Jesus lived is to be a giver. So when I understand glory and grace, it changes the way I live. It changes the way I serve. And it changes the way I give. See, stewardship, <clears throat> stewardship begins with a proper understanding of God. And it begins with the acknowledgement that Jesus is in fact God and I'm a man. That Jesus is Lord and I am his servant. That Jesus is Savior and I am simply a recipient of his grace. This morning, are you a recipient of his grace? I remember <clears throat> very vividly. April 24th, 1997. It was a Thursday morning. I got up as I did every morning as a religious freshman at the University of Arkansas. Taught Sunday school. Taught seventh grade boys. At that point, heavily involved in the church. Heavily religious. Serving. Been a leader in my student ministry in high school. I knew something wasn't right in my life. I would made a profession of faith as an eighth, grade, uh, eighth grader going into my ninth grade year. May of that, that school year. I think school had just gotten out. But for five years, I'd walked in serious doubt of my salvation because I had not received grace in my life. I remember that morning getting up, and I was reading the Bibles I did every morning, and First John chapter 5 was part of my devotional time. And, and that chapter, I believe it's verse 12, it says, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. And God took that verse, the Holy Spirit took that verse, and he seared it upon my heart, so much so that I could not get away from it. And so all morning, that verse is just churning with my spirit. And God is awakening this cold, dead spirit. The, the spirit is dead and trespasses in sin. And he's bringing it to new life. And so that afternoon, I remember being so overwhelmed with conviction that the only thing I could do, the only way I could respond to it, was to get alone with the Lord and take a knee. And I said something to the effect of this. Lord Jesus, I've been religious and I've tried hard. I've tried to make this work. But it's just not work. The Bible has been telling me that he who has the Son has life, and I can tell you today I have no life. I'm a walking dead man. But the one who has the Son has life. And Lord Jesus, the best way I know how, I confess that I'm a sinner and I need your grace. Make me a child of God. I remember standing up, and I'm not a mystical person. I'm not a, an overly subjective type person, but I remember my watch beeping one o'clock as I walked out of this bathroom at the job where I was employed, and I just felt the weight of the sin, the guilt that I'd carried for 18 years at this point was lifted from my shoulders, and for the first time in my life, I felt free. It wasn't because I did something religious. It was not because I said a bunch of Hail Marys or did any of that stuff. It was simply because I bowed my knee and made Jesus Christ the Lord and the Savior of my life. The glory of God and the grace of God was manifested in my life that day, and I became a child of God. So this morning, I will confess to you this morning, I'm not the greatest steward of the resources God has entrusted to me, but I strive hard. 
and I want to grow in that area. And I want to live in light of his glory, and I want to live in light of his grace. And so this morning, the first question I have for all of us is this. Are you a recipient of grace? Has Jesus Christ changed your life? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you've been a member of this church for 50 years. I'm not asking those questions at all. Because when it's all said and done and we stand before the Lord, you will not have any platform, any foundation to stand upon if that's your answer. That's hay, straw, and stubble, and it will burn up before the Lord. But the question is, have you received grace in your life? Has Jesus changed your life through his shed blood? If he has not... Today needs to be the day of salvation. As, as Pastor Steve <clears throat> prayed earlier, that today would be the salvation for someone in this room. If, that, if that's not your testimony, it needs to become your testimony today. If that is your testimony this morning, and you're in the relationship with Jesus Christ that you're created for, then are you serving and living in light of that grace and in light of His glory? Are you seeking that He change your life on a daily basis? What is your testimony this morning? We move into a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Nick to go ahead and come. If you're not in relationship with Jesus, there's no greater need in your life than that. And I'm going to ask that you simply step out of the aisle, come to the front. And this is not some sort of religious uh, ceremony or ritual that I'm asking you to do because simply stepping out and walking an aisle and taking me by the hand does nothing in eternity. But it is an opportunity for you to get in front of somebody and have the gospel articulated even that much more clear and have an opportunity for you to make your profession of faith and put your trust in Jesus Christ. So I'm